0: Today's program is brought to you by Add Passion and Stir, Big Chefs, Big Ideas, the new podcast from the anti-hunger organization Share Our Strength. Listen at strength.org slash passion.
1: You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org.
2: Listening to Eat Your Words on Radio- Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Kathy Arway, and we've got a fun show today. So, in preparation for Valentine's Day in a couple of weeks, uh, the next two shows will be about sort of fun, little, loving, lovely foods, uh, aphrodisiacs, if you will. And, um, of course, I had to focus all on oysters for one show, so I'm really excited to have my guests today, who have written a book all about celebrating the oyster um, in many ways, not just the aphrodisiac qualities. Uh, and um, their their book is called In Celebration of the In the Ah Sorry, it's called A Celebration in the Raw Oysters. It's by Jeremy Sewall and Marion Lear Swaybill, and they're on the line right now. How are you? Hi, Kathy. Hi there. Hi, Marion. Hi, Jeremy. So, Jeremy, you're a longtime restaurateur, and uh, some of your restaurants include the Island Creek Oyster Bar, Row 34, and Eastern Standard, and you work with oysters quite a bit in your profession. So, uh, it's really great to have you on there. And, uh, Marion, you've been a longtime uh, television producer. You've worked with many chefs and food writers over the years. So, um, it's great that you guys teamed up for this really cool book. Um, so... Just to get started here, um, a lot of people eat oysters in the summer. So, your book covers so much about oysters, but I hear this constantly from people Oh, is it safe to, you know, when is it most safe to eat oysters? And then there's this little myth about only eating oysters in months that end in R, so September to April. Uh, or so are the safe months. That's, that's the myth. And the summer is less uh, desirable. Now, what do you guys have to say about that, just from an expert's point of view?
3: Well, I don't know if we're experts, but we maybe know more than most people. But the, the myth came from is you don't eat oysters in the month without an R in it. And it's May, June, July, August. You wouldn't eat oysters. And where that came from is that's when the water starts to get warm. And when the water gets to a certain temperature, wild oysters spawn. And when they're spawning, they're still okay to eat, but they're not very—they're really mushy. You know, all of their energy and everything is going into surviving and spawning, and so they don't taste great. And um, that's uh-huh. where it came from. But that is—that's really not the case anymore. You know, they've uh, most oysters consumed are uh, aquaculture or farmed, yeah. and they're mm-hmm. not wild. So a lot of people have controlled the environment or bred the oyster that that doesn't happen. So it's, yeah. it's great to eat oysters all year long.
2: Hey, but it's really interesting to know more about the life cycle of the oyster because it sounds like they sort of, they eat a lot to hibernate for the winter so they're a little bit more tasty in the winter. Is that the idea?
3: Well, you know, they're always, they kind of hibernate in the winter a little bit. Mm-hmm. They, they When the water gets really cold, they don't feed on the plankton as much. But yeah, they, they plump up in the, in the spring when they start we call it pumping, you know, they, they kind of open up and they're filtering water and um, eating the kind of the natural stuff that's in the water, the plankton. And then throughout the spring and summer, they really uh, plump up and then in the fall as well. So, you know, this is a great, it really depends on, you know, where you're eating oysters, whether uh-huh. it's Gulf oysters, West Coast, East Coast, you know, the different times of year that oysters have different qualities. But, uh, you know, Northeast in the fall is a great time to eat oysters.
2: Um, so you guys have devoted a lot of pages in this book to how oysters are so um, affected by their environment. It's, um, there's actually only five breeds of oysters in the world, but a lot of it has to do with what you guys uh, um, have described as marroir, which is sort of like terroir, but it's the natural ecosystem that they're living in. So that's why we have so many different flavors. Um, where, is the, where does that term come from, by the way? It's, it sounds like it's a play on terroir. But why the M?
4: Um, There are some oyster farmers in the Chesapeake, I'm trying to remember who it was, that (laughs) initially coined Meroir and it is absolutely a play on Mm Meroir. Oysters really are what they eat. Mm. And you can be in an area like Duxbury where Island Creek oysters are bred and a mile down the shoreline and another another mile after that and another mile after that, each one of those batches of oysters are going to have a slightly different flavor. And it is very much like wine. And it's the so, same
2: type, though. It's, a different, it's not like it's a different type of grape. It's also um, one species, but they just vary so much depending on what they're eating and so forth.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's it's really environmental. So it's water temperature, it's what they're eating, it's how they're grown, it's time of year. So an oyster, you know, from Barnstable in the spring is that same oyster is going to taste different in the fall. And it's, it's really about, um, you know, what, what they're eating, you know, and mm-hmm. the time. You know, so in the spring when they're getting going and they're trying to fatten up is different. They're going to taste a little different yeah. than they are in the fall.
4: You know, same what, oyster
3: grown, grown in a river is going to taste different than one grown more towards the ocean. You know, so little little nuances like that really play into the flavor.
2: You know, one thing that is really fascinating that you guys have pointed out is that oysters are truly organic because there's no feed, there's no man made feed that you have to give them. It's really just whatever is in that ocean that they're uh, consuming. So. Um, it also makes it uh, a bit more economical for the farmers, I would imagine. But um, it also, uh, you know, it, it takes away that part of the equation of, you know, how can we, how can we most, um, you know, I, I don't know, how how can we feed these oysters with, uh, and that and that'll affect the um, the flavor because, as Marion mentioned, they are what they eat, and that happens to be the ocean <laughs> wherever they are. Um, yeah,
3: I mean, it, it's. I mean, it's a, it's farming; it's not mm-hmm. manufacturing, so you're you're yeah. susceptible to all kinds of predators and and disease and weather, like any like any other farming. So, and it's also a waiting game. Oysters grow fairly slow. I mean, if you can get an oyster from seed to marketable size in 18 months, you're doing really well. Some oysters take three years or more to grow to a size where you can sell it. So, you know, it's it's not. It's, you know, it's it's mm-hmm. farming, it's hard, it's patience, it's luck sometimes, and all of those things go into it. I mean, and I, a, if, mm-hmm. if farmers had to go out and feed oysters, I think we'd have a lot less oysters in the world, that's
4: for sure.
2: Yeah, and, but you mentioned, um, you sort of allude to uh, one oyster farm in the South where, you know, they might have to stop production or stop harvesting if there's uh, conditions that, uh, like a flood, may cause... Uh, uh, rainwater to contaminate the breeding area so they're also sort of vul- vulnerable to um, you know conditions around them uh, tell us a little bit more about that
4: well it's i mean the, the oyster farmers across the board in my current and only experience are the most dedicated passionate hard-working people on the land and in the water
2: Mm
4: -hmm. um oyster farming is brutal you are susceptible to the weather yeah this can be in the northeast for example a horrible northeaster terrible weather hurricanes in the spring and summer in the gulf coast um you are susceptible to varying problems that can come with the tides with the hurricanes. I mean, when I was interviewing Lane Zerlot of Murder Point Oysters, at one point, he can the last minute, he canceled a call and he said, We've got to pull everything out of the water. Um, the EPA is shutting us down for the next 48 hours because there was a huge hurricane coming in, and they were very worried about what was going to wash in with it. So, I mean, farming across the board, independent farmers, is a unbelievably tough and brutal life that's lived by incredibly dedicated men and women. And you add the water factor to that, and weather factors, and climate change, and, you know, on, on a dime, mm-hmm. you can you can lose a crop. You can have to pull everything out of the water and get it into storage and wait to be uh, set back up again. So
3: yeah, I mean, you know, in the Northeast, a lot of the farmers in the Pacific Northwest as well. Like, you know, you get a lot of heavy rains, and you know, oyster farming is usually done in, in you know, kind of rural areas. And if there's where there might be other farms, where there might be cow farms or golf courses or things like that, and all the stuff that.
2: Runoff, yeah. You know,
3: if it rains heavy, runs off into the water, it certainly affects live shellfish and um you know, that can shut you down a little bit. So it's it's a it's kind of a balancing act for those guys to really uh do it. No one those guys do an amazing job. No one wants to mm-hmm. you know, harvest oysters that aren't great and wonderful and perfect. So it's it's a balancing act for for in the environment and with the
2: farmer. Yeah, and you kind of understand that, you know, because they are so susceptible to these conditions, um, to the health and of their environment, that oyster farmers, as Marion was sort of alluding to, uh, sort of become environmental stewards um, because of, you know, it, it's just like, you know, cause and effect. You're trying to extract the resources, but then in order to do so, you have to, Um, maintain your environment to the best, to create the best possible product, um, or any product, (laughs) perhaps. Um, So it's a really lovely sort of, um, you know, cohabitation there of, you know, maintaining the best conditions in order to produce. Um, As you guys write, um, you know, Oysters, if I may quote, you write, Oysters hit the sweet spot where environmental activism, the local food movement, cutting-edge chefs and restaurateurs, and aspirational foodies meet. And uh, you really see it in the, the whole process of harvesting and raising them. Uh, it's really fascinating. Um, so let's talk a bit about your experience with oysters. Uh, Jeremy, you write that you weren't such a huge fan at first, but obviously this... Um, the first few tastes weren't that impressive but uh, how did you become such a fan that you devoted a whole book to and uh, many restaurants <laughs> to oysters
3: you know it's 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 just such a. I I love the process of food I love to know where it comes from and how it's grown or raised or harvested I just have always been infatuated with that part of of food and, and being a chef and and you know, and oysters kind of fit all of those things. Like to really understand the de- dedication these guys put in is amazing. And oysters, there's a lot of, you know, it's, there's a lot of place in oysters. So if you are mm-hmm. eating oysters, looking at the water, or you are in an oyster farm or at a bay, and and enjoying that pr- an oyster, like it just tastes different, and it has a little bit of kind of romantic, romantic, kind of nostalgic feel to it. It's just such a, you know, food that's been around forever that's so simple and so pure. Um, Once I really started to learn about them, I fell in love with it. And the first, I could tell you, the first oyster I ever ate that I loved was in Hog Island. I was Mm. standing in Tamales Bay and um, in in California, Marin County, and I was working out there and John Finger chucked me an oyster and handed it to me and I was, you know, instantly in love with oysters at that moment and it's just nah, I've eaten oysters before but never really got it so it's just its understanding what those guys do how hard they work yeah, and that. how kind of a, such a unique product it is is pretty amazing.
2: You're absolutely right seeing that visceral sort of um, you know oysters being pulled out right out of the bay being shucked and plopped right in front of you it, it gives a lot more context to what you're eating. Um, how about you Marion when did you fall in love with the oyster?
4: Well. I first ate oysters in New Orleans. I uh, was at a television conference, and this is 1985 or 86, I think, uh, standing on line with a British colleague waiting to get into Cape Paul's, which was the place to eat in mm-hmm. New Orleans. And he was very impatient, and he said, come on, we're getting out of here. And he Takes my hand and we're around the corner, and all of a sudden we're in the Acme Oyster Bar. I'd never eaten an oyster before that. Uh-huh. And we're at a table with a bunch of locals, and three dozen oysters get plopped down in front of us. And two hours <laughs> later, and with the oysters and two pitchers of beer, I was. <laughs> that isn't. You know, yeah, I've eaten some great oysters in many places in the world. I remember eating oysters in. Sydney Rock oysters in the harbor overlooking the Opera House in Sydney, and I've eaten them in Woodstable, England, and I've eaten them in the south of France. Mm -hmm. I didn't know a thing about them until one day over lunch, Robert Abrams, who's the publisher of Abbeville, with whom several times a year I share a platter of oysters um, in Manhattan down at Aqua Grill, and he publishes fine art and illustrated books. and picked up a shell and turned it over and he said, look at how beautiful this is. Mm-hmm. Look at how beautiful this shell is. Let's fill a book with them. Yeah. And literally at that point, the only thing I knew about oysters was the fastest way to aqua grill. Mm-hmm. That was the sum total of my knowledge. And I went out and I did some research and I knew immediately that I was going to need a collaborator who actually knew something about oysters. You could not learn from a book. I mean, the history section, the art section, a lot of the information was the kind of research over the years I've done for television documentaries. But the, the know-it-in-your-bones and DNA and taste and all of it, mm-hmm. I was lucky enough to be introduced to Jeremy. And so I've learned a great deal about oysters, and uh, it's it's been quite amazing, but I, I truly can remember the first oyster I ever tasted.
2: So. Well, yeah, it sounds like a binge uh, that you went on for your first oyster. Um, this book is really lovely. I want to you guys talk a lot about the history of oyster appreciation, particularly in, in America, which is a unique story. Um, let's talk about that a little bit more right after a quick little commercial interlude.
0: Add passion and stir. Big chefs, big ideas. The new podcast from the anti hunger organization Share Our Strength brings together your favorite chefs and amazing social innovators to discuss how food impacts almost every major issue you care about your health, your environment, and your children's ability to learn. Uplifting stories from chefs like Michelin star winner Jose Andres.
3: People want our respect. People don't want our dirty shoes and our old pens. People want us to show up and show them that they really matter to us.
0: And Top Chef winner Brian Voltaggio.
3: Hunger has many different faces. You can walk down the street every day and see children playing in the playground. They're hungry. They don't know where they're going to get their next meal. They don't know if they're going to have dinner.
0: Can be heard at strength.org slash passion. You can help change the world by changing the way we think about food. Listen at strength.org slash passion. That's strength.org slash passion.
2: All right, we're chatting more with Marion Lear Swable and Jeremy Seawall, who are the co authors of Oysters, A Celebration in the Raw. So, in this book, you can find out so many different varieties of oysters through um, really beautiful photography. Um, But you can also find out more about the history of its consumption as a culinary uh, sort of sensation in America. and, uh, you know, in the early 20th century, uh, there was a lot of oyster bars, in, in, particularly in New York, in the East Coast. Um, and then we had a, a thing called the Industrial Revolution. And uh, you guys write that um, the oyster was almost wiped down to about 1% of its uh, natural capacity in the shores just surrounding um, uh, New York, where they once thrived. But now, um, you know, the oyster... Has been revived both in a culinary sense and um, through these wonderful farmers that you guys write about so much in this book. Um, it really is a, a kind of great comeback story of the century. Uh, oyster appreciation. Uh, why do you think uh, you know? Why do you think people are becoming uh, such fans nowadays? Why is this? What, what do you attribute to this rise in oyster appreciation in restaurants like the one I'm sitting in right now?
3: Well, I, I, I always think that there's been an oyster culture. Um, you know, I mean, it was such an important food source and such a kind of an iconic ingredient for a long time.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: And I think that, you know, as, they become, as they've come back, people have learned to appreciate them more. And, you know, a little bit of it is also, you know, the Industrial Revolution did a number on the waterways, really hurt aquaculture. Um, And then you you fast forward, well, all the fishing industry and, you know, all the regulations and, you know, families and generations of people trying to make a living working on the waterfront uh, and realizing there's just not enough fish to catch have turned to other things to do. And and oyster farming has been a big part of that. So, you know, I think that tells a really great story about the working waterfront, you know, the story of fishermen and, and aquaculturists and how important that's been. Mm-hmm. And as a culinary ingredient, it's just become such an iconic part of, um, you know, food in America and, and everywhere, really. And it's it, you can go into the finest dining restaurant in the world, and you can find oysters there. You can go into a local pub, and you can find oysters there. And there's a, you know, there, it's there's a level playing field there where it's a live product. You can't really make it taste better uh, by doing too much to it. And it's you have these wonderful people uh, get excited about eating them, and these wonderful people preparing them, and that's just been mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. such a fun journey to be on, and, and you know play our you know Mary and I get to play our little small
4: part in it. Yeah, I also and think mm-hmm. the whole uh, the artisanal food movement across the board, yeah, created mm-hmm. an additional fertile territory for an ingredient like oysters because they are handcrafted. Yeah. in the in the purest way. So there's that appeal as well. On top of which if you like oysters all you have to do is taste your first one and you know, get to the next place where you can have a platter.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> Absolutely. Um you know, it's really interesting though that they have stayed so um such a part of our lore and legend in our culture and you guys definitely write about how um you know, they've been written about from everyone from MFK Fisher um, consider the oyster, to a Venetian adventurer in Lothario by the name of Casanova in the 18th century. Um, he was quite a fan of oysters and apparently ate 20 of them every morning, or 50, you write. And um, he uh, was known for helping sort of cement this reputation or association that oysters have with uh, being an aphrodisiac. But you're also right that it goes back even farther than that to a Roman physician named Galen of Pergamon, who used to prescribe oysters to men who were having, uh, let's say, uh, problems in the bed, bedroom. <laughs> so uh, was there any scientific, I mean, it, do you know of any scientific basis for this uh, type of uh, use of oysters?
3: Um, I'm not a scientist. <laughs> I cook for a living, but I'm going to say it's 100% true. <laughs> All I, right. I have nothing to base that on except I want people to eat oysters for whatever reason they want to eat oysters. So if they think it works, then it works.
2: Absolutely.
4: Oysters have a lot of zinc in Mm. them, which is believed to be something that may or may not enhance sexual prowess. Um, The mere act of eating an oyster perhaps is aphrodisiac in in, in and of itself. Um, oysters are as old as time, and there have been stories of oysters from the beginning. Uh, some of them have to do with aphrodisiacs, and some of them, one of my favorites, I'm I'm up in Boston right now with Jeremy while you are at Luberta's in
2: mm-hmm. Bushwood,
4: but during the Revolutionary War, the first streets of Boston were paved with oyster shells, which are indestructible, and mm-hmm. the... the American soldiers during the Revolutionary War used oyster shells as projectiles against the British. Wow. As weapons. No kidding. An supply full of...
3: That's not as romantic as
4: no, not the other as. <laughs>
3: but it's still <laughs> well, a <bit> historical <laughs> fact.
2: I, I love it that you guys mentioned also that civil engineers uh, right now in New York are trying to figure out how to fortify our coastline. Um, with oyster shells, um, which they historically have been before the Industrial Revolution wiped them out, and we saw how vulnerable vulnerable the island can be without them after Hurricane Sandy. Um, so that's an interesting, you know, side to them. You know, it, it, their the shells themselves create this natural uh, barrier, or not just the shells, but yeah, the oysters. <laughs> shout out,
4: shout out to the Billy and Oyster Project yes. in Manhattan and then the Boston Harbor Project, you know, among the organizations that are working very hard to revive, improve, and protect our shoreline.
2: And uh, if anyone has been eating out in New York recently, you might see the Billion Oyster uh, little sticker on outside of participating restaurants that are donating their oyster shells um, from your right. platter, perhaps, to this project. Um, What's going on? Do you know, Marion, what the latest is on on those um, efforts?
4: Billion Oyster Project collects oysters. I I collect shells, I Mm -hmm. think, from 21 restaurants. They, like every other not-for-profit in America, don't have the funds to uh, buy more trucks. and collect every oyster shell. They've got a waiting list, apparently, of 47 restaurants. Uh They're doing amazing work. They've got an education program as well. So any restaurant that's got a billion oyster sticker on it, Bravo, and anybody who wants to send them a check towards buying the next truck, Bravo on that as well. I mean, they would love to be able to collect every single oyster shell in Greater Metropolitan
2: area. Yeah. So shout out, um, check out the billion oyster project. Um, and, uh, and also, um, you know, give a kudos to restaurants that are already participating in that. Um, so it's amazing that, you know, oyster shells are so useful. Um, the oysters themselves, they filter water, they help create natural barriers. Um, do you know of anyone that it might be trying to use shells in other ways, such as paving roads like they used to in Boston or, uh, they have so many agricultural uses. I know that calcium are sometimes, um, they're chopped up and sometimes fed as part of chicken feed. Um, anything else? Well, uh, I mean,
3: there's, there's a lot of, I mean, in you know, here in New England, a lot of people use them for, you know, certainly in Nantucket, Martha's been near the Cape for, drive, you know, lining driveways.
2: Driveways, yeah.
3: Landscaping yeah. and things like that, but... Um, you know, I, other than eating oysters and shucking them, I don't I don't know what else to do. with Yeah,
2: <laughs> it. well, it's like not not a thing is uh, wasted or uh, everything is useful. Um, so, what is your favorite oyster right now? So you have you know beautiful descriptions and um, you know tasting notes on a, just a huge number of oysters here. I'm trying to educate myself so I can go eat and with authority at the next uh, oyster bar I go to. But is there like a best best oyster right now that you're digging
3: uh, well you know no it's like asking me <laughs> what which one of my children is my all favorite
2: right.
3: and i and i could actually answer that but i won't but um i don't know the oysters change throughout the year island creeks are always a great oyster there's just no That's, doubt about it okay you know, massachusetts mm-hmm. um and it just really depends right now we've had a pretty mild winter and they're harvesting oysters all over the cape you know Things coming out of Barnstable are just really beautiful and delicious right now and salty and um, really wonderful. Um, Island Creeks, this time of year, I love West Coast oysters. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hamahamas or Hog Islands from the West Coast, this time mm-hmm. of year, are just really my favorite time of year to have those. So it's a, it's a great time to eat oysters. There's lots yeah. of great ones.
2: Awesome. As somebody
4: said to me not long ago, the best oyster there is to eat is the one I'm about to put into my mouth. Yeah, the one in Pliny was
2: a bad one. I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure. Any, you know, reputable oyster bar that you walk into, uh, you know, is choosing the best of the best right then. So thanks for folks like you, like Jeremy. Um, you know, we're hopefully well taken care of in that area. But uh, and also thanks so much for this book, both of you, uh, Marion and Jeremy. It looks like that's all about about all the time we have for today. But um, thank you. Yes. Yeah. Thanks so much, Marion, and thanks, thanks, Jeremy, and thanks everyone at Heritage Radio. We'll see you next week on Eat Your Words.
1: Take care. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you.